From the Canon Institute, this is The Russia File. I am Maxim Trudelyubov. While everyone is preoccupied with the coronavirus pandemic, with public protests and electoral politics, the world's three largest nuclear powers, the United States, Russia and China, are busy modernizing their nuclear arsenals. And they are doing so in a world that will soon be left without any strategic arms control treaties inherited from the Cold War. In early June, Russia released a new nuclear deterrence document. It's called the Principles of State Policy of the Russian Federation in the Sphere of Nuclear Deterrence. Does it signal a new strategy? Is there any news at all? Will it help or hinder potential arms control negotiations? And in general, what lies ahead for us in a world devoid of arms control? Is nuclear still the world's most powerful deterrent? What do the Russian and all other major military forces want? Does the future belong to private military companies, perhaps? Will wars be fought remotely and entirely by machines? Joining me to discuss these and other poignant issues of the day is the astute military analyst Michael Kaufman. Michael serves as director of the Russia Studies program at CNA. He is also a fellow at the Kennan Institute. Michael's research has focused on Russia's armed forces, military thought capabilities and strategy. So this is going to be a very fascinating discussion, I'm sure. We will start by taking a look at Russia's new nuclear deterrence paper and then move on to other, perhaps more fundamental questions. So, Michael, what's new, do you think, in Russia's nuclear thinking? Does this paper actually tell us anything new, uh, anything new and exciting? It's a policy document. It's not a military document. And these things, this is a declaratory policy. I have a very dim view of most declaratory documents because they are uh, very ambiguously worded documents that uh, cover a whole range of scenarios for the military. They have very wonderfully sounding normative language. You know, everybody's very defensive in, um, in declaratory policy documents. And they use this kind of language that... Um, allows anyone to read what they want into the document itself, right? So you can kind of read your confirmation bias and continue believing whatever you believe Russian nuclear strategy was before. And at the end of the day, these are not really planning a strategy documents. That is, there's no, no one's going to use them for anything in a, in a real conflict scenario. So these guys kind of, kind of explain where I saw on that. So this document comes out, and the real purpose for it is, of course, to forearm Russian foreign policy uh, um, and, and arms control negotiators to be able to try to first uh, deflect and defeat some what Russians see as malicious interpretations of Russian strategy. Because as you know, there's always more hawkish voices, people in the West who think that Russia has a strategy that they call escalate to deescalate, which is um, preemptive nuclear use following a case of military aggression. That is what they fear. And this is not the case, but actually Russian, Russian strategy for escalation management and limited nuclear use Okay, is not terribly far off. But what they fear is that Russia could commit military aggression and then preemptively use nuclear weapons in an attempt to coerce NATO to back down, right? And then attain a fate of conflict. And that's not the case of Russian nuclear strategy. That's really nowhere there. But be that what it may, the, um, the policy document is meant to deflect some of this and then to set up sort of the Russian MFA for a conversation on what Russian uh, views on nuclear deterrence really are for both this critical year in arms control and for um, a sort of post-arms control future, which we might enter next year. 
When we think about the nuclear weapons today, what do we think? How do we think? Is nuclear still the world's most important deterrent? Is it the force that prevents deadly wars from happening? Or can its accumulation provoke terrible conflict? It's very much debated between people who have a view sort of called a sort of stronger nuclear revolution argument versus those that don't believe that nuclear weapons are that revolutionary. To what extent they deter large-scale conflict, I believe that certainly nuclear weapons do not deter limited conventional conflicts, expeditionary operations. And in fact, um, I'm a strong believer in the so-called stability and stability paradox that if there's really strong stability at the sort of level of nuclear war between countries, that you're actually going to, um, you're, you're more likely to get some conventional conflicts, right? To, because uh, powers become more confident in their ability to manage escalation. But in general, yeah, I think that nuclear weapons uh, definitely deter large-scale conventional war. They deter nuclear war, and they're a serious factor between the major nuclear powers, right? Um, it basically suppresses the conflict into other formats. So to me, it's pretty important. It's very relevant. And all three major nuclear powers are undergoing modernization today, right? Russia, United States, and China. So we are entering a different kind of nuclear period in the state of these arsenals. We have lost most of the arms control agreements that were inherited from the Cold War, late Cold War period, and the post-Cold War period. So these frameworks are really no longer with us, except for New START Treaty, and that's not looking too good for next year, right? It doesn't, doesn't look like we might have any arms control as of next year. So it's definitely a topic we're talking about, right? So to say you can make a bad paraphrasing. It's just if you're not interested in nuclear weapons or nuclear strategy, nuclear strategy is interested in you. So <laughs> um, that's the reality of the modern world. And uh, my view on it is that the, the policy that the Russian government released, it's, it's essentially a trade in talking about the posture of Russian strategic nuclear forces, which was never very controversial and there wasn't much in question. That is, there isn't that much interesting in that document. And it's, it sort of codifies a number of statements that Vladimir Putin has made in recent years at different events, right, about Russian strategic nuclear force posture while being very kind of quiet and walking past and around everything else. That is really Russian nuclear strategy, the role of non-strategic nuclear weapons, the role of non-nuclear strategic weapons, you know, some conventional nuclear integration. Does Russia have a nuclear warfighting uh, strategy? Does Russia have an escalation management strategy? To which, of course, my answer based on the work we've done is yes, absolutely. And, and, it, and it always has. It's not new. I mean, people often forget that, you know, Russia wasn't just born of uh, immaculate conception in 1992, right? Before that was the Soviet Union. So oh, Russia inherited both the nuclear arsenal, the nuclear strategy. Oh, and all the people who designed it from the Soviet Union and the Soviet general staff, right? That these people did not go anywhere. So, so naturally, there's going to be much greater continuity than change. Okay, yeah, that was actually was uh, going to be my next question about the framework, about how you regulate and how you talk about nuclear now in this new period that we apparently already have entered with all the major agreements gone. So how do you now think about it? How those three major powers are going to deal with um, talking to each other about their nuclear arsenals? Existing sort of arms control doesn't answer key security questions for either country for um, some decades now, right? For Russia, the big challenge has always been America's strategic conventional arsenal and trying to find ways to limit that, right? The, 
the non-strategic nuclear weapons for Russia was always um, a competitive strategy, an asymmetric response to, in some ways, to American conventional superiority, and also because at the end of the day, you can't replace the deterrent effect of nuclear weapons, right? That um, it's it's not an equal trade in terms of conventional armed weapons for nuclear weapons. There's just a real asymmetry there in terms of deterrent value and the psychological effect that nuclear weapons bring to the conversation. Um, for the United States, it's always been a challenge, uh, sort of uh, both modernization and growth of Russia's non-strategic nuclear weapons arsenal, which is not subject to any arms control, right? And I'm not sure why Russia would ever make it be subject to any arms control either, since it's not clear what's in it for Russia, right? It doesn't make much sense. If that's one of the principal offsets and it's an integral component in Russia's escalation management strategy, well, they seriously discuss it. So I think there might be a future down the line for conversations based on arms limitation as opposed to arms control in this area, uh, restraint in terms of deployments, number of weapons produced. But I'll be very honest, I'm not a member of the arms control community and I'm not incredibly vested in that conversation. I spend a lot of my time on nuclear strategy and war fighting questions. These agreements, you know, have two principal aspects to them. One is political. These agreements are political in nature, right? And both sides have to have the political will to make an agreement like this or to an extent an agreement like this. And right now we're operating in a context where political will is very low, interest is pretty low, and, and, and trust is non-existent. Another side, of course, is military, right? That these are bargains. They're trades, where you uh, agree to a degree of vulnerability and transparency, right? Showing your arsenal to the other side, agreeing to restrictions on yourself, on your own power, but you're trading that for greater security, right? There's an implicit, there's an implicit trade being made there uh, that, that you um, are gaining stability and security for yourself and you're actually reducing your costs in a potential arms race and security dilemma. And you're also buying greater stability in event of a crisis by having that knowledge and that visibility, right? So you're giving something up because nothing, I mean, nothing should really be free, but, but it takes a degree of statecraft in order to make those compromises and trades. And I certainly, I don't know if we're there yet. I think in a very general sense uh, with uh, conventional arms in the sense that what is now possible, where the strategists are looking in the sense of the conventional arms and, um, you know, weapons development. And unlike nuclear weapons, conventional weapons are obviously much more usable, much less escalatory, right? So most of the conversation in the game is conventional in nature today. And to the truth is, you know, um, paradoxically, this is exactly where so late Soviet Union was going. You know, the Garkov period of 77 through 84, basically, the, there became a consensus from Brezhnev's time that nuclear war is unwinnable. The United States was building towards an independent conventional war option. So was the Soviet general staff, right? And Agarkov wanted to build a high-end military with all these capabilities. But you know what happened in the early 1980s with, and the story of the Soviet economy. So it became much easier to fire Agarkov in 1984 than to rearm and modernize the Soviet military because he won a lot of money. And there's one thing the Soviet Union did not have in that time period, which was, a lot, which was more money to spare to what already was a completely crazy defense burden, right? So the Politburo said, you know... There's a cheaper solution to this problem, which is we will fire you and we will not do the things that you propose we will do. And that's going to cost a lot less than all of your ideas. Okay, so let's take a small gap. So we're going to traverse all the way into the 2000s, right? And the Russian military reform in the 08 that then continue under uh, Shoigu and Gerasimov in 2013 
and the Russian modernization rearmament program, the big one that starts in 2011, continuing to this one, they basically in that vein. I mean, most of these ideas are Agarkov's ideas. Okay, there's just a, an implementation gap of some decades between them, right? Like this is really, this is really the continuation of that, and all the writing from that period by Soviet general staff that you know non-strategic nuclear weapons would be an escalation management role. So, so in some respects, you see incredible continuity with this giant time lapse. But um, I remember you saying that um, that Russia's military reform, arguably one of Russia's most successful ones, Russia sort of took the lead and uh, China followed. And uh, that kind of sounded interesting. So uh, can you elaborate on that? Keep in mind, there were several piecemeal attempts of Russian military reforms for the 90s that stabilized the force. But the big one, starting in late 08, really did transform this undercooked military that Russia inherited from the Soviet Union that had been stabilized and partially restructured with previous reforms. But it really took the force in a different direction. And it seems that there were definitely quite a few influences from that into Chinese military reforms. And the Chinese took a serious look at their force, right, and dramatically cut down the size of the army, went much more focused on the Navy uh, and air power, and then did a whole bunch of restructuring because they also had a very large bloated force that had very questionable utility, right, for both the modern character of war and the principal adversary that they were dealing with, the country trying to deter, which is the United States. And the Russian military went along the same route, right? Because the Russian military basically looked at, okay, what what are the, the possible conflicts the Russian military has to fight? Large-scale war, regional war, local war, armed conflict, right? Who are your principal potential threats? Because in, in Russian military thought, there's a lot more tailored to the adversary, to the country you're thinking about, than in U.S. military thought. U.S. does a lot more capability acquisition, right? Because we're far away from all the fights and all our fights are expeditionary, we don't know necessarily who we're going to fight. So we have to buy things that we think will work for Russia and China and North Korea and Iran and whatever war we end up going into that we don't know about yet, right? So we're sort of, when we try to do military capability procurement, when we think about defense programmatic strategy, we're trying to look, we're trying to look at things that that will be relevant for the next 20, 30 years and will encompass kind of the nature of threats, right? Countries like Russia that border the specific problem set they deal with can safely say, look, problem one, NATO, problem two, China, okay? Problem three is never going to be Iran, and it's not going to be Libya. Like, they can confidently say that. That's a, I mean, they can they can structure their procurement that way. So, yeah, in tailoring it, basically, Russian military said, look, there's no point building out first a very large ground force to get destroyed the way Iraq's military did. You go for um, integrated air defense, you build out aerospace forces to deal with the the threat of U.S. Uh, dominance in the aerospace domain, right? That's the way they want. And you see that Chinese basically very much shows the focus, say, okay, the place where you need to focus is the maritime domain, because their theater is naval, primarily. And again, aerospace offense and aerospace defense, right? Like you don't need, it's not really clear why China would need um, remotely a large army. So, and and the kind of capabilities that you would buy that would reflect a competitive strategy. And a competitive strategy, at least in this case, is you don't chase parity where your adversary has major competitive advantages, right? That's been generally the Russian military approach on the whole, not entirely, but largely. You play to your own advantages and you buy things, buy things that are cost effective in neutralizing the advantages of the other side. So if the other side has a tremendous advantage in aircraft and has much more money than you, you're never going to achieve 
airspace superiority over them, right, in, in, in air combat. So instead, you invest in air defense. If the other side has um, large blue water navy with big carrier strike groups, like Soviet strategy was basically, you don't build a large blue water navy with carrier strikes like the United States. You build a large submarine force, and then you build lots of missile ships to shadow U.S. carrier strike groups, right? And you basically build a navy whose entire job is to kill that other navy. That's all, that's all they're going to do. Right. Basically, you build a, an asymmetric force. What do the armed forces, the military organizations of the world actually want? You know, the Anna principle of sort of military analysis, all happy families are alike, but every family is unhappy in its own way. Well, all happy militaries are alike. All militaries want the same things. They want very large force structures. They want to buy really, really, really exciting new capabilities of military weapons. They don't want to be sent to war to fight anyone really with them. And they want a lot of senior officer positions, and they can have parades and do exercises. And if they do get sent to war, ideally, they would like to fight somebody that they can easily beat, okay? And then they can come home and have parades. But of course, every military is unhappy in its own way. Every military has its own major institutional problems, legacy problems, so on and so forth. Militaries can only pursue interesting strategies to, to a certain extent because in some ways they have the same drives, right? They all want more because more is more in military thinking. Um, they all want more capabilities. They all want larger force. But there is this talk, and I heard a lot from people in your trade um, about private military companies and um, that private military companies are becoming more important and, uh, and they are cheaper and they're smaller and they can be effective. Uh, so what do you think, to what extent it's true uh, to think that um, the future, a certain extent, belongs to those precision, small targeted operations performed by, you know, mercenaries, essentially? For proxy wars and small expedition operations, sure, they make a big difference on the battlefield, especially, you know, for countries that can't scale up expeditionary operations like Russia does, you can deploy maybe five, six thousand men in Syria, but you don't have the logistical capacity. You don't have global throw. Well, nobody has global global logistical capabilities like the United States, certainly. But um, not even remotely close. Not even not even any U.S. ally. But so in that regard, yeah, they're very useful um, and they're a very good complementary force. But and essentially, they're also very good for foreign policy where you want some plausible or implausible deniability, right? If you want your forces fighting in Libya, like as a current case of sort of Wagner Group for Russia, and then you're going to deploy a series of your aircraft with some unknown pilots that are now being trained in Libyan runways, and you don't know where they got these people. Are they are they Russian retirees? Are they um, somebody else that they hired? Are they, you know, foreign mercenaries? So in that regard, look, the future doesn't belong to them, but the future of certain types of operations certainly has a place for the use of mercenaries, and always has. Mercenaries, you know, didn't actually go away. I mean, there are certain periods of time when, when mercenaries were far more prominent than others, right? That's true. And in, there are a number of European wars where actually the bulk of the forces in the European wars were mercenaries. And that's pretty problematic. I will tell you, you know, there's a reason why nation states use mercenaries, but they try not to overuse them because they make a real mess of things. Russia's had some uh, wars over the years that were entirely fought by privateers. There were some really interesting wars in the Baltic Sea, for example, back in the days of old, where all the sides hired privateers and basically ruined the entire maritime utility of the waterway for themselves. But the, the long story is short is that, no, the future does not belong to mercenaries. You're definitely going to see them used more often in proxy conflicts. You're definitely going to use them, see them uh, being used more often by countries like Russia. 
that allows them to conduct operations and scale up or down, right? But without losing lives in an expeditionary operation of soldiers, without needing necessarily the logistics that a military footprint will require, and having plausible deniability in case things go wrong, right? Basically, it's a way of managing your risk. You're, severe, you're managing your political risk at home. You're managing your, your risk in foreign policy. Militaries have a very guarded view of mercenaries, to be clear, right? They are an instrument, but they understand that they are, they are an instrument that comes with problems, right? And in general, militaries have a very sort of um, wary approach to the use of mercenaries. It's sort of uh, an instrument of necessity when you need them, and then you try to get them out of the battle space when you don't. Plus, there are often issues with, with command and control and, and who's in charge of what. And if one thing all institutional militaries have in common is all commanders hate when there's another force on the battlefield in the operating space that does not answer directly to them and is doing its own things, right? Or maybe it answers to them part of the time, okay, when it's part of their operation, but then is off doing something else and it's not well coordinated. And I'm not going to say necessarily that that's the case of Wagner today, I'm just saying that that's a general truth of all military commanders. They definitely don't like that scenario. There is increasingly a realization, especially in the West, but also in Russia, that human lives could be spared while a war still could be fought. Sometimes it means not putting the regular force in harm's way, and using different kinds of proxies or mercenaries instead, which is, of course, not particularly humane. But is there a possibility of a fully automated war? Technologies are out there that allow the military to wage wars with machines alone. Is this the future? Is this what we will see at some point? In wars where there is a very strong asymmetry in um, technology uh, and military power between the adversaries, sure. I mean, the United States has been able to fight those wars, but it's been fighting those wars against, you know, Al-Qaeda, the Taliban, the Libyas and Syrias and and somewhat Iraqs of the world, right? If As long as you can avoid a war, if I put it this way, Max, the answer is yes, if you pick the right fights, sure, you can have a war where you lose very few people. Probably the truth on technology trends is that the soldier is increasingly alone on the battlefield. That's one of the things we've been discussing for years now, that what's happened is that uh, the amount of firepower that's now concentrated, right, and integrated of individual sort of warfighter is tremendous, meaning the individual soldier has so much firepower today compared to the infantryman of World War II of World War I that there's actually far fewer of them on the battlefield. There isn't that much mass, right? And uh, because you can bring so much firepower to bear to support them, right? You have this tremendous multiplier of the force that you have in the actual battle space. And you can even see this in the case of Russian, um, for example, intervention in Syria, right? Like it's one mixed aviation regiment Total, including commercial support and contractors, is maybe 5,000, probably maybe 3,800, 4,000 people there now. And they essentially made the real difference in support of, you know, uh, Syrian forces and Iranians and Iranian proxies on that battlefield with a not, you know, technologically not especially sophisticated force when it first deployed in 2015. So you can see how firepower makes a big difference. Um, on the value of life, so... I think that's true. I think that's really become much more true in terms of soldier lives in Russia, too. That's one of the things that Syria brought home, that people increasingly began to see that the Russian military 
invested a tremendous amount in actually protecting soldier lives and minimizing soldier exposure and risk and actually caring about the lives of soldiers. I don't think that's true when it comes to proxies in Ukraine. I don't think that's true when it comes to mercenaries. But I think that is a different model of thinking in the Russian military because the Russian military, first of all, doesn't have a lot of people. It doesn't. It's a pretty small army. Okay? Compared to the armies of ground armies of even countries like Pakistan or Turkey, right? The total total active duty Russian military force is probably no bigger than 950,000, right? Compare that to the millions of people that the Soviet Union had under arms and the million mobilization bases that they had, right? So it actually doesn't have that many people. And it invests a lot more in the people it has. So in that regard, I think definitely Russia is also making that transition. It's maybe not where the United States is, but it cares a lot more about, cares more about soldier lives than it did. Ah, that's, that's a disputable point. On the nature of sort of being able to have uh, these easy um, standoff wars where nobody gets killed on your side, yes and no. I think that that's possible, but I will, I will put it this way. That's the war of the rich, Max. It prices out a lot of countries. Most countries can't have wars like that, okay? I don't want to get, I don't want to get into a socioeconomic classes discourse here, but, but the truth is that the amount of billions of dollars that the United States spent on that kind of war, if you look at the trillions spent on Iraq and the maybe close to a trillion spent on Afghanistan, will tell you the story of how much a war like that costs. So I don't think that's going to be within the price range of most countries to be able to fight that way, expend that, basically use that amount of technology. And the other part, I'd also say, look, there are two ways to fight that war. Either you don't have people on the battlefield that is it's entirely um, standoff using drones and, and precision guide munitions and whatnot. You don't put your people in harm's way. Or you pick fights with people where you completely dominate the battle space, right? You can deploy to their country, overwhelm them, and you run the whole show. And that allows you to have medevac and other things on site so you can save your soldiers' lives very quickly, right? And that's, the, that's what's happened in Iraq and Afghanistan, that the United States had a very high really high ratio of, of wounded to killed, right? Because most soldiers' lives were saved, right? And that's the advance. That's not, um, and I want to point to that. That's not necessarily the advance of warfighting technology, right? Of capabilities of firepower. That's the advance of medicine and the ability the, to save your own soldiers' lives when you actually own the battle space. Okay, and um, here's uh, the last question. Judging from what the Russian generals have been saying, or to the extent that we understand uh, the Russian military thinking, they tend to think about today's war as a comprehensive affair, total affair, that includes political warfare, political protest, and even foreign-funded NGOs. They even think about oppositional political activities that simply inspired by foreign examples as part of warfare. It's something that my colleagues in media have called hybrid warfare, whatever we think about the term. So what do you really think about this? Are we going to end up understanding war as, you know, something that embraces essentially almost every kind of interaction that countries have between them? This is a great question, Max. So first, I'll, I'll, I'll tackle the last part of it. So I do think that we are engaged in not a militarized, but a securitized conversation, which is unfortunate to me because now all forms or modalities of inf- interaction between countries that um, that are in a confrontational context are viewed as some form of warfare, right? Political warfare, information warfare, psychological warfare. Now everything is war, which drives me crazy because then nothing is peace. Then it's completely meaningless because the most basic interactions between countries are now seen in the context, right, of 
uh, a securitized discourse, right? It's actually not clear what what behavior a country can possibly engage in that you will not consider as some form of warfare against you, right? It's become pretty challenging. And this discourse drives me nuts because to me, I don't want to take a, a reductionist view of warfare, but warfare at the end of the day is organized violence, right? It's about hurting people and breaking things, right? And you really know when you're in war, right? There is political war, there is information war, but a lot of stuff, frankly, is not war, right? They are forms of indirect warfare, yes, but we need to have a, an understanding of what we mean by war versus other forms of competition, confrontation, and whatnot. Um, and, and that's a negotiable space right now. It's hard. I'm not saying they're... It's, it's easy to do. But this is an enduring conversation. Read Kennan's 1948 memo of organization and political warfare, where he where basically he's talking to a state policy planning staff and establishment saying that, you know, we Americans have a view of warfare that makes it seem like a sporting match with a clear beginning and an end to the event. But the reality is that war with Soviet Union is sort of the sustained confrontation and that political warfare is a sustained confrontation with no start or end point to the game match, which is totally true. And I just want to highlight that. I mean, I had an article years ago where I wrote that, you know, if you read Gerasimov's writing and read the Russian military writing, it looks like they stole Kennan's 1948 memo because this is section, in, and I'm not saying they have, I'm not saying they plagiarized it, but it's such an enduring problem, right, Max, that you're going to have people writing about this problem over and over again as each generation discovers this problem, which is why I made that quip early on that very few things are new. They're only new to the people dealing with them, right? That here they are, and they've discovered the problem of 1948 that people are writing about back then at the start of the Cold War. <laughs> All right. So on the Russian military mindset, so much hate has been made of this because they really picked up this discourse that, look, beyond traditional, conventional, and nuclear warfare, there's this other challenge, and this is a challenge posed by various forms of indirect warfare, political warfare, indirect uh, information warfare, and so on, and forms of subversion. And so these forms of conflict, they are basically, it's not clear when, when you can clear, it's not clear when you can say that war has actually begun, right? Because there's a whole host of activities taking place to shape the environment, but their conversation on this was principally during two periods, right? The period of, of danger and the period of sort of imminent military threat, right? During, when, when there's a threatened period of conflict, that is to say, right? And so the assertion was the non-military means, right? They predominate during a period like the one we are currently in. Like if you ask the Russian military to say, what are we currently in? They'll say, well, we're not really in peacetime. We're during a in a period of military danger, right? Because they're engaged in a confrontation with the United States. And that confrontation is not a war, right? But it is a period of military danger and military threat. And it can translate into, right, a period where there's a direct military threat to Russia if, if there's a crisis and things escalate. Okay, so basically they married this discourse. They came up with a model that's called new type warfare. That's how you know it's old because the word's new is right in the title, right? And, and the thrust of the model is to marry the political regime's concerns about sort of U.S. or Western political warfare with the high-end military threat, right? Because the way the Russian military fuses, this, because at the end of the day, most of these people in Russian military are not political warriors, right? You get, I mean, you have to be serious. Gerasimov is an armored warfare officer. They're in the business of buying tanks, planes, and submarines. They have a massive defense budget, a huge procurement budget, and political warfare costs very little. So nobody in the Russian military is going to 
uh, base a defense expenditure of close to 4% of GDP for the sake of political warfare. So what they're basically telling us that the threat is there will be a high amount of political warfare against Russia that will seek to destabilize the country, right? And will create fifth column movements, so on and so forth. And this will then be followed by a very high-tech U.S. intervention, right? Using precision-guided weapons, advanced conventional weapons, and the like. And, and so this is kind of the problem that you're dealing with from the Russian military mindset. But the way they really married those is that non-military means kind of dominate during a threatened period of conflicts. But then when you switch to war, what dominates when you switch to war? Primarily military means, right? And maybe there's more non-military things in a local conflicts or uh, in an, uh, a war like with Ukraine, which is considered a local war in Russian doctrinal thinking. You can get away with more of that in there. And the way Gerasimov does this is actually very challenging, Max. Because he'll start off by saying that the problem was color revolution and the things the United States did in the Arab Spring. And then he needs to find a way to explain how buying submarines and planes will solve that problem. And it's actually not logically obvious at all how X connects to Y, right? So he has to walk you from the problem of political warfare to I need trillions of rubles for a large land army, air defense systems, an air force, right, and the navy. And he's got to explain that to you. And it's not that easy. Okay, <laughs> It really isn't. If you think about the way they start off talking about the problem. And, and of course, eventually, like basically signaling up saying that the, that the Russian military has it and has the answers to the modern security challenges, et cetera, et cetera. And, um, okay. But to conclude on that thought, so a lot of hay has been made on Russian military thinking and political warfare. But the truth is, Gerasimov generally always says, that, look, the Russian military is the integrator. It coordinates right? Military and non-military means. Most of the non-military means do not belong to the Russian military. They belong to intelligence agencies. They belong to the MFA. They are um, forms of economic competition. And even in the ways they, they divide up information warfare, information psychological, information technical, right? Well, the Russian military may have a lot of the information technical means, right? Hacking, offensive cyber warfare, various other technologies, but information psychological is principally most of the stuff is not their business. Like they don't run the IRA. They're not in charge of Prigozhin. They're not in charge of a lot of these intelligence operations. They have some of the resources like you see now that um, a specific GRU unit is con- executing these covert operations. But you can't fathom that Gerasimov is actually in charge of this or giving them these orders. Because why, you know, like this is not related to the work of the Russian general staff per se, and what they see themselves as doing. So from his point of view, the Russian military is the integrator, right, of the military side and the non-military side, but their job and their business is still principally military. And the way Gerasimov talks about it aligns closely to kind of the way I describe warfare, which is from the Russian military's point of view, is they bring the coercive aspect to Russian diplomacy because their business is about hurting people and breaking things. That's what the military does. The Russia File podcast is a product of the Kennan Institute at the Woodrow Wilson International Center for Scholars in Washington, D.C., and is a companion of Kennan Institute's Russia File blog. The mission of the Kennan Institute and Russia File is to improve America's understanding of Russia and the broader region. For more of our analysis of Russia, Ukraine, and Eurasia, and to read our blog, please follow us on Twitter at Kennan Institute, on Facebook at Kennan.Institute, or visit our site, wilsoncenter.org slash Kennan.